Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. We'll look at Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 47. Mark writes, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went in to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. And so what we'll do is what we normally do. I'll, I'll give to you a little bit of a background, reminding you of a few things that we've already seen in order to make this passage come alive a little better for us so that we can see some of the things that are taking place on that day. Now, we've already seen recently that Jesus had dismissed his spirit and he had finished his work. Various times during his ministry, Jesus had prophesied concerning his death. From the very beginning, when you remember back to John chapter 2, Jesus had spoken there, and he had made it clear that he would die, but he also had made it clear he would be resurrected. Now, it wasn't as clear as he later was to present it, but it was there in a seed form, if you will, because it says in John chapter 2, verse 19, that he had been asked for a sign. It says, when they, when they asked for a sign revealing his authority, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, in that passage, they begin to argue with him, saying how long it had taken to build that temple, and they were thinking that Jesus was speaking of the temple that Herod had been working on for so many years. But John 2, verse 21 tells us that he was speaking of the temple of his body. So he had already begun to speak to the people. He had already, at the beginning of his ministry, stated that, that if you destroy the temple in three days, it'll be raised again. He's speaking of his resurrection. As we've gone through Mark's gospel, we've seen that Jesus has made that clear various times. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 says that he had begun to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In Mark 9, 31, he said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. In Mark 10, 33 and 34, he said, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, 
They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus had prophesied at the beginning and at its conclusion of his ministry that he would be killed but would rise again from the dead. Now that's something his followers didn't want to hear and it's something that his followers didn't understand. But just as he had said, just as he had prophesied, he had died. He died on that cross. Now we saw how Jesus' mother Mary had been present as well as his beloved disciple John. But there were other women there Matthew tells us in Matthew uh, 27, verse 55, that many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there, looking on from afar. They were there. They were his followers. They had ministered to him. They loved him, and they sorrowed to see him die. Now, Matthew gives us insight into what happened when Jesus died. In Matthew 27, 51 through 53, Matthew writes, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So last time we were together, I stopped and didn't give you anything about that. I'll give you that now. Now, Matthew 27, 52 had said the graves or the tombs had been opened when the earthquake had hit. They would have had to remain open over Sabbath. Jewish law would not allow anyone to close them back up over the Sabbath. So Matthew tells us many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep had been raised. Now, I've mentioned this to you before. The word saints is used in the New Testament especially. You see it in Acts chapter 9 uh, used three different times in reference to believers in Christ. And so it's a common word when referring to believers in Jesus Christ, especially in the New Testament, of course. Many times the Apostle Paul refers to them in his letters. He refers to us. The saints is just a Greek word. It's hagias. It speaks of being separated. We're the separated ones. We're separated from the world and separated to Christ. And so we are hagios, we are holy, we're separated to him. That's what the scripture says. There wasn't, a, you know, there weren't some special, really high level believers who were called the saints. It was all of us. And so it's been said, either you're a saint or an ain't. You're one of the other. So for us as believers, we're saints. And it doesn't make us special in the sense that, that sometimes people may associate that, ooh, you think you're a saint. I've had people say that, well, you think you're a saint. I am. I am a saint, my son. You know, uh, I'm a saint in that Christ has set me apart for himself. I'm a believer in Jesus, a follower of his. And so when it speaks of many of the bodies of the saints, commentators will point out that that would have been believers in Christ who had died prior to the death of Jesus and had been buried. That's what it's speaking of. Followers of Christ who had died. Now, the tombs would have remained open over the Sabbath. But on Easter Sunday, when Jesus was resurrected, they too, many of these saints, were resurrected. That would have been a literal fulfillment of something Jesus had said in John chapter 5, verse 25. In John 5, 25, he said, Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear 
will live. And so it's a literal fulfillment of words Jesus had spoken earlier in his ministry. Now, these saints entered the city of Jerusalem and appeared to many. Now, it would, it would mean many who knew them, because if these people were not known by those who uh, were in the city, then it would have meant nothing to see a stranger passing by. So it speaks concerning them uh, appearing to many, many of their friends or acquaintances or families. That's what it speaks of. But they didn't remain with them. These saints would have been what we would call trophies of Jesus' victory over the grave. They would have accompanied Christ to heaven as what is called the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 20, Paul speaks of it. He said, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so Jesus promised eternal life to his followers, and this would have been physical demonstration. His words are true. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, it says this, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. That was an Old Testament prophecy by Isaiah the prophet in chapter 25, verse 8 of his book. And so that's what was taking place. And now, verse 42, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. The body is hanging on the cross. It has become necessary for the body to be removed. Problem is, it's, it is what is called the preparation day. It's a technical term for the day before Shabbat or the Sabbath. And so Josephus, a Jewish historian, had said every Sabbath had a preparation that began at 3 o'clock the preceding evening. So he's asking for the body of Christ, and he's taking courage to go and speak to Pilate. There are other things taking place. If you'd like to turn with me, I'm going to spend a few moments here in John chapter 19, and I'll show you it in Scripture. If not, you can just uh, wait for a moment for others who uh, love God more than you, so they'll turn. No, I'm just teasing you. John 19, 31 through 37, for those who would like to turn to the Gospel of John. But that gives us more insight into what happened. You see, in John 19, beginning at verse 31, it says, Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other also who was already dead, uh, I'm sorry, who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. 
And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced, which is Zechariah 12.10. The Sabbath is what is called, was what was called a high day because it was preceding an important feast. The Sabbath was about to begin. They didn't want his body to remain on the cross. John 19.31 says, the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. You see, the Roman practice during that time was to leave the bodies on the cross until they decayed. It was to serve as a warning when people would walk by and they'd see this crucified criminal rotting on a cross. It was a warning to others, this will happen to you. And so their normal procedure was to leave it until it decayed. It could take days. And this wasn't acceptable to the Jews, especially in this season. They didn't want the Sabbath to be profaned by them removing the bodies on the Sabbath. You see, that's, that's against the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 21, 22, uh, verses 22 and 23, it says, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree. But you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So they didn't want the bodies to remain on the, uh, on the cross. They wanted to bring them down. So they had to go to the Romans who had a habit of leaving the bodies there to ask permission to remove that body so it could be properly buried. You see, if they were to have taken those bodies off uh, when it was the Sabbath, they would consider that to be work. And so they had to have it done before the Sabbath officially began. They don't, didn't want to break the law. So they made a request of Pilate. So John 19, 31, they asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The reason they wanted their legs broken is because they were using their legs to cause themselves as they raised themselves with the strength of their legs, they were able to raise themselves on the cross and take in air. The way that the Jews, or the way that anybody would die when crucified, as I've shared with you before, is that the sheer weight of their bodies, eventually they weren't strong enough to even get a small breath, and they would suffocate as the, the rib cage would collapse on their lungs. And so they would die of shock and dehydration and suffocation. That was a normal way, but it could take days. It could take a long time. And so the, the people who are crucified next to Jesus are still alive, though Jesus has died. To hasten their death, they come with a mallet. It was a wooden handle with a metal uh, head, and they would break the shins. And then they broke the shin bone that would cause them to be incapable of lifting themselves any longer, and that way they would die quicker because they couldn't breathe anymore and they would suffocate much more rapidly. Well, they came to Jesus, but they saw that he was already dead, and they didn't break his legs. Now, they didn't know that Jesus was dead yet. It was unusual for prisoners to die so quickly, so in in Mark 15, 44, it says that Pilate, when he was told this, he marveled that he was already dead, summoning the centurion. He asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, 
he granted the body to Joseph. The centurion that is being spoken of here is the one who was there, who had watched the death. He had, uh, he was overseer of the crucifixion with some of his men. And he's the one that you find in verse 39 of Mark chapter 15 when it says the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. It is that centurion because he was overseeing the crucifixion that was brought in and uh, asked about that. And that caused Pilate to marvel. They normally didn't die so quickly. It could take them several days. He was already dead. And John makes it very clear. So they did not break his legs. In verse 34 of John 19, it says, One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Immediately blood and water came out. There are various commentators. When I do Bible studies, I like to look into the commentators of the past and, and to gain and to learn and to be taught by their, their writings and their insights. And, and as you go through passages like this and you look at some of the, the older writers to see what their insights are, there are various things that they'll present to you as possibilities as to why this is noted in this way by way of application. For example, uh, one will say, well, the, the spear that was thrust into the side of Jesus is revealing that he actually had a physical body. Now, why would that be important? Well, if you were with us in 1 John in the study, I, I shared that with you, or in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John and 1 John were written from a perspective of dealing with a heresy that was entering the church in the early days of the church. It's called the Gnostic heresy. And the, the Gnostics denied that Jesus had a physical body. And so, it's a way of pointing out that he actually had a physical body as he died. And so, he's dealing with the heresy of Gnosticism. There's a second way that it's looked at. Some see in water and blood a picture of baptism and communion. Both of these are sacraments that illustrate salvation. They picture redemption and they, they picture re regeneration. And so they use those as pictures of, of redemption and regeneration. There's another application that, that uh, some have given. And it's, uh, it's a different kind. They say that this is a demonstration that the death of Jesus was through a broken heart. Through a heart that was broken over the sin of the world. In Psalm 69 verse 20. The psalmist said, reproach has broken my heart. I'm full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. And so you have applications. You have applications of this. What can it mean? Um, you know, but John tells us. He says in, in John 19, 36, he said, these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. So in his death, two prophecies are fulfilled. Uh, John 19, 36 gives us one. Not one of his bones was a prophecy. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Now, why is that important? Well, the New Testament refers to Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the type of the Passover Lamb. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks of this in chapter 5, verse 7. He says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. He goes on to say, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Under Jewish law, 
that related to the celebration of the Passover, you see it in Exodus 12 and Numbers chapter 9, the Passover lamb cannot have any broken bone. So Jesus had no broken bones because he was that Passover lamb. Psalm 34, 19, and 20 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. But there's a second that John alludes to. They shall look on him whom they pierced. That is a fulfillment of Zechariah 12, 10. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. It's interesting that Zechariah makes sure that he, he points out that when it, it speaks, they, they will look upon me is in reference to Jehovah God. But it's fulfilled in Messiah Jesus. A well-known Bible teacher was having a conversation, true story, having a conversation with the, uh, the prime minister of Israel and opened up Zechariah 12.10 and said, what is, who is speaking here? And the prime minister said, well, that's obvious. That's God speaking. God is speaking. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. That is God speaking. And then the Bible teacher said to her, Golda Meir said to her, when did you pierce your God? And she became quiet because you pierced your God when Jesus was crucified. It's a scripture fulfilled in Jesus. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. This is really more of a picture, though it is fulfilled in part in, in John 19 as he is describing the fact that Jesus was pierced, but it's, it's fulfilled in the second coming of Christ when Jesus returns, and that's when uh, that is fulfilled. Revelation 1-7 says, Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And so that was what John wanted to contribute through his gospel and helps us to see what's taking place. So returning to verse 43 of, of chapter 15 of Mark, Mark says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea is really a, uh, every commentator I, I look to couldn't really give a direct or an actual a geographic location, but they were, they were unanimous in that it was a few miles to the north of the city of Jerusalem. That's what Joseph of Arimathea, that was the town he came from. It's like Jesus of Nazareth. It was the town he came from, but he was, he was uh, living at that time in Jerusalem. And Joseph of Arimathea comes. Now, Jesus died at three in the afternoon. Evening or Shabbat, Sabbath, began at six. So Joseph wanted to remove his body before the 6 p.m. deadline. By this time, Jesus had died. All had left except for a few women that had been mentioned. They weren't able to care for his body, especially considering how late it was. And so Joseph took courage and asked for the body 
of Jesus. Now, Joseph, who is this man, Joseph? You see his name here. It's prominent. It speaks concerning him. And so what I wanted to do is give you a little more insight into who he is. He's spoken of as a prominent council member. The word prominent literally means, literally, it's well-formed. It's used of those who are noble. So he's a, a noble individual. When it speaks of the council, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high, high council. So that gives us an introduction. A second thing about him, though, is found in Matthew 27, 57, because Matthew says to us he was a rich man. The word rich is a word that speaks of abounding in wealth. The fact that he was abounding in wealth gives us some insight into how Joseph could go and speak to Pilate because Pontius Pilate wouldn't have received just anybody who walks in and wants to see him. But because Joseph was a very wealthy man, he would have had access to the governor. And so that's how he was able to go in and speak to Pontius Pilate. His wealth gave him access. There's something else we see about Joseph. He was good and he was righteous or just. Luke 23, 50 and 51 says it this way. There was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their counsel indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So he's called a good man. But when Luke refers to him in this way, he's not saying he's just a good man. He's saying this is a man of great excellence. This is a man who's really a superior type human being. That's what it's speaking about. He's an excellent man. He's exceptional and he's exceptionally just. He's a righteous man. When it speaks of him being a, a righteous man, that means that he judges fairly concerning Jesus. He's excellent. He's righteous. He's benevolent. And so that's a picture of the man. A third thing we see is that he's on the Jewish High Council. I already mentioned that. But being a prominent man on the Jewish High Council, that word prominent again, speaks of his faith, his reverence, as well as his devotion. And he held a position of high office similar to what we would call a senator today. But he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, during the time of, uh, of John the Baptist and, and all, people were waiting for Messiah. Luke chapter 3, verse 15 says the people were in expectation, all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he's the Christ or not. So there was already a spirit of expectation. And you see that same kind of expectation in, in other people in Scripture, that they were waiting for, anticipating, looking for, you the Messiah to come, especially in that age when the Romans were so oppressive and the Jews were chafing under their tyranny. And so this is a man who was, had expectation, but not like the others. This was a man who was patiently waiting for the kingdom because he knew that Messiah had come. It implies that he believed that Jesus was this expected Messiah. You see, Matthew 27, 57 says... Joseph had also become a disciple of Jesus. So this is the way he is, he is spoken of. He was a man who had that expectation, but it was fulfilled when he met Christ. But he had trusted him in secret. He was a secret disciple. John 19, 38 says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He believed, but he believed secretly. 
because he was afraid. John 12 tells us in verse 42, at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. This is a man who was a secret disciple. How can you be that? But he was. It would seem that he was like so many others during that time who, who believed but just didn't want to openly express it, at least not in a complete way that you should. You know, this movie that has come out, I mentioned earlier the uh, Jesus Revolution that Pastor Greg Laurie from Harvest had has put out. I was part of that. I was part of that. And I still am. That movement. The day I got saved, the day I got saved, December 27, 1970, and this follow-up counselor was talking to me in the back. Arthur Blessed had given the invitation. I stood up. I think there were around 10 or so of us who did so out of 4,000 people, 10. And I had gone into that back room and I had met with that counselor. And he had said to me, you need to read the Bible. You need to pray. You need to fellowship with other believers. And you need to tell somebody. That was the four things I was taught when I got saved. Same four things everybody's told. I'm pretty sure that if we give an invitation and follow-up takes place, those who come forward are going to be told the same thing. You need to read the Word of God. Why is that? Because the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. There's no way for you to become a Christian without believing the Word of God. And see, one of the things I get concerned about today is, is some, sometimes the Word of God is eclipsed by professional speakers and professional bands and professional light shows, and the platform becomes an entertainment place, and the speaker becomes a celebrity, and the band becomes the house band. That's not how it is in the Jesus movement. Everything is about Jesus Christ. That's why we were called the Jesus people. That's why I was called the Jesus freak, because it wasn't about Calvary Chapel. It was about Jesus Christ. And I was open, and that's what we're supposed to be. How are people going to be saved if no one says it? How can we be afraid of the one who gave his life for us? How can we be ashamed at the one who hung naked on a cross so I could go to heaven? How can I be ashamed of that? And yet during the time of, 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 of Nicodemus and Joseph, because both of them were secret, the, Joseph kept it quiet. He, he was quiet. Even as the women were there crying and mourning and weeping, Joseph was there. He came, and he had to take courage. Why? Because John tells us before that, he was a secret disciple. He was ashamed of the gospel. He was ashamed to be associated with him for fear. Jesus said, if you're going to fear, don't fear the one who can kill you. Fear the one who can put you in hell. If you want to fear... Fear him. Don't fear man. I am not afraid of man. What can man do unto me? If he kills me, that's my ticket to heaven. 
Why? You know, I've been preparing to go to heaven for 52 years. What, I'm going to delay it by saying I don't know him? It doesn't make any sense, does it? See, so I got saved in the Jesus movement. I want God to do it again. I want the young people to rise up and say, there is truth. His name is Jesus. He saved my life, transformed me. I was into drugs. I'm no longer. I was an alcoholic. I'm no longer. I was promiscuous. I am no longer. I was a liar. No longer. A thief. No longer. I am now brand new in Jesus Christ. That comes through the gospel. That comes through the preaching of the cross. That's how it happened. You see, in I was telling earlier service, yeah, I got saved. I was a hippie. I was barefoot. They had the long hair, you know, granny glasses, big bushy sideburns. And I said, you know, some of the young people are trying to say, oh, we're hippies. You know, putting on granny glasses like that makes them a hippie. The only thing hippie about them is their hips. But <laughs> trying to recreate what you don't even know. We were not just people with long hair and dressing funky and weird. We were weird in the heart. We were weird people, period. And because we were, people would mock us. People abused us. There were people, they would, you guys won't know this. Some of you older will remember. The youngers, you don't know this. If you had long hair in some places, they'd take you to the ground and cut your hair off forcefully. They would forcefully cut your hair. They hated it. If you ever saw Easy Rider, I'm not recommending it, but it's, it kind of chronicles some of this. They hated long hairs, you know, and that's how it was. So I was a long hair, and being a long hair, they did not like me. My dad really was upset with me. If you don't cut your hair, I'm kicking you out of the house, my dad said. And then I turned 18, I let my hair grow, and my dad didn't cut me, kick, kick me out of the house. I knew he wouldn't, but at 18, I, I just let my hair grow. You know, I let my freak flag fly, as David Crosby said. That's an ancient citation. None of you will know in the song, I almost cut my hair. But, see, I was telling first service, I already was hated. I already was verbally abused. I already was rejected. I already was. And when I came to faith in Christ, and so many of my generation, hippie kids, because in Southern California, the Jesus movement, a lot of the kids who were saved were the hippies. A lot of us went to the beach constantly. That it was a real Southern California kind of phenomenon. So we had the short hairs and the long hairs. We had all of that. A lot of us were the barefoot hippie kids who were into alcohol and drugs and everything that went along with it. But when I got saved, I didn't care if people didn't like me. I didn't care if they rejected me. I didn't care if they said things to me. You know why? Because somebody did love me. Somebody did accept me. And it wasn't man. It was God himself. So if God has accepted me and you don't, the problem's with you, not with me. And so I had that attitude. And having that attitude, I wasn't afraid to tell you what was true or what wasn't. Because we did that as a habit. It, we would say, I believe this, I believe that. Some of it was crazy. One of my plans was to drop a lot of acid into a reservoir and get everybody high. You know, so I said, because I thought everybody on acid, it'll be cool. You know, that's how we thought. We were stupid. I was stupid. But the bottom line is, when people rejected me, I didn't go home and cry. I said, you know what? There's always somebody who will receive Christ. I've been doing that for 52 years. Guess what? There's always somebody who wants Jesus Christ. 
See, that's why I believe this movement that people are talking about, it never died. It went underground for a while. We grew older. We had our families. We had our jobs. We worked towards retirement. Some of us didn't raise our kids to know Christ. That's the shame of many parents. But I was asked yesterday in the, in the meeting that we had with the, the groups, what, what I consider our, our, our Saturday seminar with our worship teams and people who serve here, what is your greatest accomplishment? I said, I haven't, I haven't accomplished anything. I haven't. God has. I haven't. But my greatest joy is not having a big church. My greatest joy is my wife. My wife follows Jesus Christ. My kids have turned to Jesus Christ. And I'm praying all of my grandchildren will come to, to Jesus Christ. Why? Because things don't matter, but people do. And the heart of the Jesus people was the Jesus community. I don't care what color your eyes are. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care if it's curly, straight, or, or if you're bald. It doesn't matter to me. Because if you're a Christian, you're my sister, you're my brother, we are family, and that's what matters. That's what matters. That's what it is. That's what it is. And see, that's, that's what Jesus Christ, he said, take my word and preach it throughout the world that every creature may hear. Every. So he wants us all. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when I read this, I can't help but wax for a few minutes about that. How Joseph was secret. He was a closet Christian. But he came out of the closet. He took courage. And he went and said, I want the body of Jesus Christ. Well, he asked the centurion, Pilate did, is this true? Is he dead? And so he found out that it was true. So suddenly, well, yeah. Well, but it takes sometimes even six or seven days for them to finally die. They normally don't die in less than two days. The centurion says, I was there. I saw it. He died. And that's how come he released the body. And so verse 45 tells us, when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen. He laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. So he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him. Jews would normally place myrrh, aloe, and other aromatics in burial. But they had to finish this quickly because the Sabbath was about to come upon them. Luke 23, verse 53, says that Joseph took Jesus' body down, wrapped it in linen, laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. Again, in John 19, 39 through 42, John informs us that Joseph was helped by another disciple, a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus had, had brought 75 pounds of spice and, and wrapped his body. That's extravagant. That's a king's burial. Remember that Mary gave a pound of spikenard in John 12, verse 3, and it was very costly. This was 75 pounds. In John 19, 40 and 41, it says, Taking Jesus' body, they wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one has, had ever been laid. 
Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Matthew 27, 60 says that they laid Jesus' body in Joseph's new tomb. And again, a prophecy was fulfilled. Isaiah 53, verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. And so we'll close with a couple of thoughts. Joseph and Nicodemus. Somebody said the disciples who had openly followed Jesus during his lifetime ran away at the end. But the two who had kept their faith secret while he was alive came forward publicly to give him an appropriate burial. Nicodemus. Nicodemus was uh, introduced to us in John's Gospel in chapter 3. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, the scripture says, and he we don't know why it was night, but he came by night. Some say that might have fit better into his schedule. Others say that he just didn't want to be associated with this itinerant Jewish rabbi and being a very prominent man, a member of the council and a teacher. He didn't want people to associate him with Jesus, and so he came by night. But he says to a master, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No man can do the works that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus now has a conversation with Nicodemus there by night, and and it speaks to him concerning the need to be born again. And Nicodemus looking at him has a problem with that. What do you mean born again? Is a man to enter into his, father, his mother's womb, into his mother's womb once again and be born? How is that to take place? How is it that you being a teacher of Israel don't know these things? So Jesus has a very open-hearted conversation with Nicodemus. And ultimately Nicodemus walks away. But Jesus says unless a man is born again, he cannot see and he cannot enter into God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Over time, apparently, Nicodemus said, let those words sink into him and become a follower of Christ. Very rich. It's, it, it, I, one of my commentators said that Nicodemus had got, he went by a different name, but it was the same man. He was one of the three richest men in Israel. Very wealthy, very powerful man, very influential. And Jesus called him the teacher of Israel, which tells us that he was a devout man and well-versed well in Scripture. And that's why Jesus could say to him, how is it that you don't know these things? These are the simple things where the wind blows where it wants to and all. So is the one who is born of the Spirit. How, how come you don't know these things? Are you the teacher of Israel? You don't know these things? That was a way of humbling this man. And Nicodemus went out and he thought. And ultimately he had come to a conclusion, this man is a just man. So later on, when the plot is being made for, for Jesus to be taken, he says, do we, do, we, do we judge a man without giving him a fair trial? Now, he was part of the Sanhedrin, and he actually started opening up a little bit at that time. But at the very end, he said, no, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm openly going to follow Jesus Christ. When Jesus' men had run and hidden, and only a few women had been there, and one, one apostle, John, here comes these secret disciples to the fore, and they made sure that Jesus was buried. It says in verse 46 that they had bought the fine linen. They took him down, wrapped him, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. They would put these, the, the, the stone is in the shape of a wheel. There was a cutout in the stone, so it was like a cave that had been opened, and you have a doorway. And the stone, weighing several tons, is on an incline, so you're able to push it, and it rolls down and lodges into the uh, niche that has been cut out of the rock so that nobody can roll this very heavy stone up. You'll see that in the resurrection account. And uh, they would do that to keep animals from coming in. 
and uh, devouring the bodies. So they would seal it. And also to keep people from coming in and, and taking any valuables. As I mentioned, there was a king's ransom of spices and all inside that tomb because it wasn't just Jesus wrapped in it, but they spread it throughout the tomb where he was laying and even throughout the area there. So it was a very, very um, beautiful uh, pre uh, preparation of the body and for, for, for its uh, being presented in that, in, in that, uh, that tomb and all. And so it was Joseph's tomb that they used. Now the women observed verse 47 where he was laid because they wanted to, to do something for Jesus. Luke 23, 56 says they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. They rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So they intended to come back. And once again, this emphasizes Jesus was truly dead. Their hearts were filled with grief. Their hearts were filled with sorrow. Jesus is dead. Some of you, and I'll close with this, some of you have experienced a sudden death of someone you love. Even unexpected. I have. And, and the grief is like waves of sorrow that just overflow and won't, they won't stop. It just keeps coming. And you weep until you can't weep anymore and then you weep some more. Someone you loved. Someone you never thought would leave you. Someone that meant everything to you died. When my dad died, I sat on the, on the, the stairway in my house. I sat on the stairs and just wept like a baby. Cried like I never cried before with a cry that's not just from your throat, it's from your heart. And it took me a long time to heal. It was that deep for me. I cried quite often. Even when I was teaching, I would well up with tears. Because pain can be great. Someone once said, it's not a lack of faith for Christians to cry. Christians cry in pain because we love deeply, and when you love deeply, you hurt deeply. These women are doing that. They're looking where Jesus was buried, making a mental note. We'll come back. We'll, we'll, we'll finish this burial, as ornate as it is, as incredible as it is. We'll finish the burial. But in the midst of their grief, they have forgotten his promise. On the third day, I will rise from the dead. And that's why we celebrate Easter. Not simply the death of Christ on the cross, that breaks our heart. But the resurrection gives us the promise of life. And that's what they had forgotten. But that's what they're going to experience in just a couple of days, three days, and that tomb's going to be open, and they're going to rejoice, tell the world, and I now, all these centuries later, can repeat that story because he ever lives. He's alive, and he died for us, but he gives us life. That's Christianity. <laughs> People worship teachers who are dead. I worship a Savior who ever lives.
If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.